Ecclesia is a new church trying to live out the way of Jesus in Princeton, New Jersey. We pray this teaching invites you to love Jesus and people more deeply and to embrace the full life that Jesus offers each one of us. Grace and peace to you. This morning's passage comes from Revelation 21, 1 through 6. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, See, the home of God is among mortals. I will dwell with them as their God. And they will be his peoples, and God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more. For the first things have passed away. And the one who was seated on the throne said, See, I am making all things new. And he also said, Write this, for these words are trustworthy and true. Then he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water as a gift from the spring and the water of the water of life. Amen. I have the honor... Uh, to uh, introduce our guest speaker for today. Uh, We are are so blessed to be joined by uh, Lindsay Hankins, who is a uh, PhD student at Princeton uh, Theological Seminary and is just a truly brilliant and uh, just awesome woman. And so we're so grateful to be able to hear from her today. She's going to be continuing our series on the Lord's Prayer um, as we continue to dive into this. And so, um, yeah, uh, you guys are going to be blessed. Uh, I'm going to be blessed because I get to sit here and listen as well. And so please join me. Let's extend a nice warm welcome for Lindsay Hankins. Uh, my name is Lindsay. It's great to be here. Thanks so much. Uh, and yeah, you guys are having a series on the Lord's Prayer. I love the Lord's Prayer. I'm actually writing a dissertation that is pretty closely tethered to that. So today we're going to be talking about, there's two guiding questions. What are we doing when we ask the Lord for our daily bread? And how would we know if we got it? Those are the two questions that we're going to be pursuing. To answer those questions, I first want to tell you a story. I want to tell you a story about a guy named Basil. So Basil, later called Basil the Great, if we could all only live up to that, uh, was born around 330 A.D. in what is now modern-day Turkey. And he was born to a pretty wealthy family. And Christianity, from its start, had spread really pretty quickly to that area, and so did all these sporadic periods of persecution that followed. Rome generally found Christians annoying, and every so often did something about it. Uh, And Basil's grandmother, a woman named Macrina, in fact, she had to flee her home at one point for seven years because it simply wasn't safe as a Christian. And eventually came home, she came home, but there were waves of persecution that followed for years. And eventually, her family lost most of their property. Rome just took it, because that's kind of what happened at that time of the world. So in the midst of all this, however, Macrina's son, 
marries a martyr's daughter. Pretty high. I mean, that's like a pretty great thing in a Christian world, right? Like it's high society. So her son marries a martyr's daughter, and they have 10 children, including a guy named Basil, his brilliant sister, Macrina, named after her grandmother. And together, Basil, and then this guy, Gregory, was also his brother, and then they befriended, unfortunately, another guy named Gregory. The three of them come to be known as the Cappadocian Fathers. Anyone ever heard of these people? Okay, so they're super important. These guys wrote, at a really pivotal point in church history, there was a lot of confusion about how we ought to talk about God, both Christ, what it means to be fully human, fully divine, but then also how we have a three, we have a, a, a Trinitarian God, right? How do we worship the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, but we don't have three gods? Well, the Cappadocians, as they end up being called, were some of the first and most important pioneers of deep Christological and Trinitarian clarifications. But I don't really want to talk about that today. What I really want to talk about is Basil, but not in all these really complicated theological works that he did, but I want to talk about him as a bishop. I want to talk about him as a pastor on the ground, someone who preached the Lord's Prayer, but who also made it a guiding principle of his life. So Basil had gone to some of the best schools that were available at the time, and he absolutely slayed. I mean, he was like a top-tier student. And he ends up sort of like rubbing elbows, hobnobbing with a bunch of really powerful people in these really good schools. Uh, He befriends a guy named Julian, who's going to become important later on in the story. So Basil slayed, and he knew it. And he came home pretty puffed up about his abilities and this powerful network that he was cultivating In the meantime, while he's away at school, his sister Macrina is staying home. It's kind of the way things were at that point. And she's staying home. She's taking care of their mother, who's getting older. She has devoted her life to prayer and study. And she's teaching all the children underneath them. Remember, there's eight siblings beneath Basil and Macrina. So she's doing all this. When he comes home, when Basil comes home all puffed up, Macrina does what every good older sister should do. And she dresses him down. And she says to him, basically, there's no amount of success in the world that's worth forfeiting his relationship with God. And she tells him, you better get your priorities straight. Well, the message didn't really take. And Basil went about his puffed up life. And then tragedy struck. One of their brothers died unexpectedly. And Basil comes to his senses. He starts to recognize the vanity of his life that he had been, as he puts it, occupying myself in acquiring a knowledge that's been made foolish by God. And he does, so in, even in the midst of this, his old friend Julian, remember that guy that he was getting to know at school? Well, now he's Emperor Julian of Rome. <laughs> Pretty big deal. Uh, Julian asks Basil to join him in a really cushy administrative post, and Basil turns him down. He says that he, instead he wants to help He wants to devote his life to the church. He wants to be essentially like his sister Macrina, who's given her life over to study and to the church. And so he does. Basil starts, he devotes the rest of his life to the church, and he does so in powerfully practical ways. So three things. He establishes medical clinics right outside the city gates, and he staffs them with local monks. And then he starts to call out city officials because they're not taking care of the poor. And then he starts schools for 
for children because he thinks the church ought to be serving the world around them. So a few years into this post, a few years into serving Caesarea, Caesarea, however you want to say it, a famine sweeps the area. And life in the ancient world for most folks was pretty precarious, meaning many people's lives rose or fell literally on whether or not the winds were favorable. So in 368 in Cappadocia, they weren't. Not nearly enough rain or snow had fallen the year before, and crops were failing left and right. Families that had been otherwise able to manage are suddenly thrown into destitution almost overnight. Now, and as Galatians 3.28 reminds us, neither race, nor class, nor gender matter when it comes to having access to the church by faith through Jesus Christ. The church is supposed to be a respecter of none, right? So the ancient world, just like today, the church was a place where the rich and the poor could, if just for a moment, rub elbows like equals. It's like the DMV in some ways, right? When you walk into the DMV, no one asks you where you went to school. No one asks how your IRA is performing. No one cares. You're no better off than the person before or after you because you're all going to be stuck in the same line for over an hour, and then you're going to get to the front and be told you were in the wrong line in the first place. The DMV is also a respecter of none. But what makes the church, hopefully, radically different from the DMV is that we're based, our radical equality is based on God's overwhelming, ravishing, and prodigal love, right? So in the DMV, we're all treated equal because we're all treated equally poorly. But in the church, we're equal because God's economy is exceptionally topsy-turvy. It's where the high are brought low and the low are brought high, and all for the one and only Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit, the glory of the Father. We are all equal members, equally valuable members of the Church of Christ. Historically, though, we seem to hate to act like that. So when famine rolls through Caesarea in 368, a whole host of people joined the already destitute, terrified now at their future. They didn't know how they were going to feed themselves, and they couldn't imagine watching their children die at their sides, impotent as they slowly starved. So these people, they come to the gates of Caesarea, and they're begging for mercy. And for the Christians in the mix... They're begging their brothers and sisters in Christ to see them, to, see their, to save their lives and to save their children's lives. And to our everlasting shame, the Christian rich refused to open up their silos. And to his everlasting credit, Basil refused to shut up. It might be hard to imagine, but there was a time when bishops were basically like celebrities, uh, not like rising YouTube celebrities or D-listers, but like George Clooney amounts of swagger, like lots of money, lots of power at their fingertips. And to put it way too simply, basically as the edifice of Rome starts to crumble, Christian monks start to be the glue that holds the city together. And so they had truly a very remarkable, a remarkable amount of power. And this is how Basil chose to wield his. So first he uses his influence in the city to gather funds from the wealthy to buy food for the hungry. And when that runs out, he actually dedicates his own inheritance towards that fund. 
And when that runs out, he starts to preach. And Basil preaches fire. He got up in that pulpit week after week, begging his congregation to see the faces of those that are hurting. And he shamed the merchants and the newly rich for inflating prices during the crisis so that they could profit from the misery of others. And he reminded his rich parishioners that the naked we come into this world and naked we will live it. But we have a choice in the meantime of how much we want to look like Christ. So in one place in his preaching, he pretends like he's talking to the rich young ruler. You remember this guy? This is the guy who asked Jesus how he could inherit eternal life. And Jesus tells him, oh, well, keep the commandments. And he goes, great, I already do that. Anything else? And then Jesus lays down this real zinger. He says, yeah, there is. Go sell everything you have to the poor. And I love how scripture captures this. According to scripture, the young ruler says that the young ruler went away sad because he had great wealth. So Basil uses this story as a backdrop, and he acts like he's talking to the young ruler, but he's actually talking to everyone in that congregation who's like him. And this is what he says. He says to him, he's a liar. He hasn't kept all the commandments because he clearly refuses to love his neighbor as himself. He's so rich, says Basil, because he values a cushy lifestyle over the good of others. These are Basil's words. He says, therefore, however much you exceed in wealth, so much do you fall short in love. But now your money sticks to you closer than the limbs of your body. And he who would separate you from it grieves you more than someone who would cut off those vital parts. For if you had clothed the naked, if you had given bread to the hungry, if you had opened your doors to strangers, if you had become a father to orphans, if you had suffered together with the powerless, what possessions would cause you to be so despondent? Basil claims that in no uncertain terms, our relationship with our neighbor could not be more closely tied to our relationship with God. He says, you will not, you have not shown mercy, you will not receive mercy. You have not opened your home, you will be evicted from the kingdom. You haven't given of your bread, neither shall you receive eternal life. That is an ancient mic drop, (laughs) for the record. And at this point, you might be wondering when I'm going to get to the Lord's Prayer. Well, here it is. The Lord's Prayer begins with us, Thomas, or begins with, as Thomas Aquinas puts it, spiritual petitions, okay? So things that begin in this world, but that are brought to fulfillment in the life to come. So that God's name would be hallowed, that the kingdom would come, that his will would be done. We get glimpses of those things here, but we're waiting for their fulfillment in the day to come. And as Thomas and so many others have noticed, by the time we get to the second half of the Lord's Prayer, we now shift to the necessities of this life. So give us our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those that trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. 
Now listen, I remember I said that Basil said that our relationship with our neighbor could not be closely tethered to our relationship with God. Well, so does Jesus. He thinks that too. Forgive us as we forgive those that trespass against us. St. Augustine said that that it was the thunderous warning of the Lord's Prayer. But when it comes to this petition for daily bread, Thomas teases apart each term. He says, by asking for daily bread, we're reminding ourselves not to overreach. We aren't asking, give us this day an all-you-can-eat buffet. We're asking for daily bread because it helps us to temper our desire for more and more and more. By asking for our bread, we're also reminded not to injure another person. We pray for our bread and not our neighbors because it's robbers who take things from others. I'm not asking for your bread, I'm asking for ours. And I'm not asking for my bread other, either because when we pray, we always pray as members of the church. You may pray privately, but you have never prayed alone. And by asking God for our bread, God, we remind ourselves that everything, absolutely everything, is ultimately a gift given by God. And how are you supposed to receive a gift? With gratitude, thanksgiving, and with hands open and ready to give back to those around you. Rowan Williams is a modern theologian, and he used to be the Archbishop of Canterbury. And he once said that the phrase, give us our daily bread, was a, quote, prayer for the fullness of our church to be made manifest. How? How is the fullness of the church made manifest? He says it's made manifest when, and these are his words, when we recognize our own need and our neighbors and are able to turn with confidence to each other so that the need might be met. When we desire for the freedom to forgive and to be forgiven. And the fullness of the church is made manifest when we come to view the Eucharist, the Lord's Prayer, as the center of our Christian identity. Not purely as a ritual act, but as a foundation for our community, a sharing of bread embedded in the practice of shared life. And it was something that flows out into the service of the world's hunger. And this is how he sums it up. He says this phrase, give us our daily bread. He says, it's a prayer simply for Christ to be our food and sustenance so that all self-sufficient pride, all individual anxiety and defensiveness, all greedy effort to live at the expense of our neighbor are overcome. And the church declares with clarity and conviction that there is indeed bread for the world's hunger to be found in the body of the Lord. So bread in the Christian lexicon, means many things. It's physical bread, manna, because God knows that we have real, tangible, physical needs that have to be met. It's the word of God. And, as Rowan Williams puts it, it's the very body of Christ, of which we are a part as the church and of which we partake at the Lord's Supper. So when Christ taught him, himself taught us to pray, when he told us to ask the Lord give us daily bread, he absolutely had in mind physical sustaining bread, the kind that we make in ovens. And he absolutely had in mind his own body, which he was about to offer up for the sins of the world. 
and which we would break week after week in memory of him. So this practice, when we break the bread, the Lord's Supper, is one of the most profound testimonies we make as a church. It's where we proclaim that we are a holy community. We are the covenant people of God. And we make a mockery of that proclamation and of Christ's sacrifice when division and injustice sneak their ways into our table fellowship. Do you remember when Paul absolutely lost his mind in 1 Corinthians when they were practicing the Lord's Supper? Do you remember this? It's in 1 Corinthians 11. He hears through the grapevine that at the table, at the Eucharist, that it had become a place of division in Corinth. It wasn't a place of unity. It was a place of division. And here's what he says. He says to the Corinth, he says, because they promote division at their table, he says, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you're eating. Because when you're eating, some of you go ahead and make your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? So what are we doing when we ask the Lord for daily bread? And how would we know if we got it? In the Lord's Supper, God answers the Lord's prayer for daily bread. In the Lord's Supper, God answers the Lord's prayer for daily bread. It's where we come as the body of Christ to be nourished by the Son who gave his body to be broken for all, enemies included. We feast on him. We feast on his word so that we can be a blessing to the world around us. But all that spiritual edification, that eternal blessing, can never be separated from our current obligations to meet the basic needs of God's children. When Basil practically screamed at his congregation to love their neighbors in need, he was training them to see the face of Jesus in the poor. And why? Because that's exactly where Jesus said he was going to be. This is from Matthew. Then the king will say to those on the right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance. The kingdom prepared for you. Excuse me. The kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me and I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Truly, I tell you, whatever you did for the least of my brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. And terrifyingly, the opposite is true, too. Truly, I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. In the end... Basil quite literally saved a city from collapse by convincing his congregation that the poor among them were objects of love, not potential profit. 
And Paul derides the Corinthians for their humiliating divisions. And then just a chapter later reminds them immediately that even if we gave all that we have to the poor and our bodies over to hardship, but we don't have love, we gain nothing. So what are we doing when we ask the Lord for our daily bread? We're asking to be sustained by Christ's body, by the word of God, and for our bellies and the bellies of the whole world to be filled. And how would we know if we got it, our daily bread? You would be formed to love God and neighbor as yourself. And since that is a goal, very few of us, myself included, reach that goal on a daily basis, it's a goal we'll always chase. So we pray the Lord's Prayer, and we eat at the Lord's table as often as we can. And we do so in confidence because we know that God's faithfulness is always standing before our faithlessness. So what I would like to do now is pray the Lord's Prayer together. And just to get ahead of the weirdness of translations, let's all just say debts together instead of trespasses and debts at the same time. Let's all just say trespasses together. Um, So if you will, pray with me. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. For more information, please visit www.ecclesianj.com.